Over the last two decades, I've been on a quest to learn everything I can about leadership, obsessed with what makes the best leaders so good. After running companies small and large for the last 20 years, today I speak on stages all across the world to audiences who are interested in that same question. My name's John Laredo, and I'm your host. I invite you to join me on this journey as we explore this topic. What makes the best leaders so good? Welcome to Tomorrow's Leader. All right, everybody. So uh, you are in for a real good episode with Vaughn Scott. So let me just give you a little background on Vaughn. Vaughn and I covered a whole lot of different topics in this uh, episode that you're going to hear. He is the co-founder of an independent RIA, which is a registered investment advisory firm called Axiom Financial Strategies Group. He's got a great team. He's been working there for 20 years with them. Uh, And he talks a lot about how he taps on his team, a lot of great leadership stuff from him with regard to really building a great winning team and tapping into their talent. Um, So listen closely about that. And then uh, aside from that, he also serves entrepreneurs and family enterprises. He's a business consultant to them, working on strategies and tactics and transitions in leadership. He's also, uh, he's uh, earned his PhD from the, uh, as he calls it, the School of Hard Knocks when he was co-founder and chairman of a failed software venture, uh, but he's now a professor in practice at the University of Louisville, and he teaches a business consulting MBA program, which is really cool stuff. Uh, he and I got into it real briefly. So in any event, lots of really good uh, background with Vaughn, lots of good stories, examples of what he looks at as great leadership. So stay tuned, listen, enjoy, and here we go. All right, welcome to today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader, where we dive deep on all things leader-related, related to leading yourself, leading others, of course. And today we have a great privilege to have a really cool guest, a guy who I've gotten to know uh, over the last uh, few months, Vaughn Scott. Vaughn has been, uh, wow, this guy's done a lot. He's a serial entrepreneur. Uh, he is uh, currently uh, leading an MBA program that actually... Uh, uh, is called Consult MBA. Really, really cool stuff. We're going to get into that a little bit and uh, has uh, certainly uh, had his hands in everything from uh, helping families on financial planning and all the way through uh, all kinds of businesses, uh, software and, of course, leadership. So, Vaughn, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So, uh, tons of questions I want to ask you, but um, I'd love maybe just to start for the audience before we really get into stuff. Why don't you bring everybody up to kind of your current place, maybe a really quick little background on how you got to the point that you are right now. You've obviously achieved a lot. I think people would love to hear that. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, I, I always say it kind of reminds me of a Grateful Dead song, what a long, strange trip it's been. So, <laughs> so uh, right, right out of college, I actually went into the restaurant business and, uh, and then transitioned uh, after being in the restaurant business, r- leading uh, a couple of teams there running a, uh, my first operation had 115 employees, four managers, uh, and I was 25 years old. So it was uh, wow. it was really an, an interesting uh, interesting place to start early. Went into the financial services industry on the banking side, ultimately knowing I wanted to get into the more of the wealth management uh, part of the arena, and then uh, transitioned after a couple of years in banking. And it's funny when I got into the wealth management business, I found I had a real affinity. Uh, for working with with entrepreneurs and family enterprises, and everybody thought that the banking experience had done so much for me. And truth was, it was the restaurant experience, you know, and dealing with all different kinds of people, dealing with the public, okay. uh, you know, in in some interesting situations, and and really just dealing with large numbers of team members yeah. um, with diverse backgrounds and diverse experiences. I, I learned so much more from that. So, uh, and at a young age too, at twenty five, that's you're thrown into a. Uh, that's a tall. T- I mean, I used to work in the restaurant business. I know you got a lot of strong personalities there that you oh, cut yeah. your teeth pretty early in a big way. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I actually helped one of my father's friends. I, I didn't know it was a turnaround, but at twenty three, I, I, that was my first assignment uh, as a leader of a team, uh, and and I was ultimately tasked with doing a turnaround. The business was on the brink of failure, uh, and and truly was just asked to come take a look at it as a, as a favor to my father and to his to his friend and. Ended up working with them for for six eight months to to actually do what I know now was a turnaround, but I had no idea what what 
what I, I knew what needed to be done. I had no idea that it was, you know, what you would call a turnaround today. So it was, yeah, that was at 23. So it's been, yeah. it's been an interesting, it's been an interesting uh, yeah. career. That's for sure. So did you know you kind of had the knack for leadership at that point? Uh, did it hit you pretty quickly or what? You know, I, I don't think that I did. And, and it, it, two things that, you know, that, that were apparent that weren't apparent to me early is that I did have a knack for leadership, but that also I had a knack for entrepreneurship. You know, I was really interested in just kind of digging into things and figuring out how we could fix them and, and how we can make things better. And, uh, but no, it, it didn't really occur to me until I was in my thirties, which is kind of ironic, uh, you know, well, well into my career and having, having a family, uh, it, it you know, both suddenly, uh, became apparent to me. Yeah. Was there something that happened or what, what was it that made you kind of realize, yeah, you know, and I'm pretty good at this. You know, it, um, I think it was when I finally, you know, as you know, as we're building our, our careers, we're very busy and we're, you know, we're just working as hard as we can. Um, and I really one day just kind of took stock of the people that were coming to me for advice and, and thinking about the way other people viewed them, you know, as leaders in the community, um, and I had, I had also had the opportunity. I had chaired a couple of boards very early. I think I chaired my first board at 28. Um, so it was, you know, it was just, um, you know, sort of a culmination of events, but, but I did, and it was, it was humbling to think about, but, uh, but yeah, it was probably well into my mid thirties before I really figured out, uh, <laughs> a, that I was a strong leader and B, um, that, that I was really an entrepreneur. So was, is it, uh, and I know there's different viewpoints. A lot of people feel like, okay, you either have it as a leader, you don't have it as a leader. Do you feel that experience when you were thrown into that restaurant experience, for example, 25, did you, did you, did you have it right away? Did you kind of, did you have to grow into it along? Does it take a while? I, th- I think I felt like I had to grow into it. I mean, in some regards, I look back and, and, and I actually, the ironic thing is, um, is that at 23, I actually, as the leader, I think I was more mature than I was at 25. And I think it's because I had some early success that I was a bit overconfident. And then I made some mistakes as a result. And I think the one thing, um, you know, whether you call it servant leadership or humility or whatever the case may be, I do think that, that those traits in leaders are, are really, really important. Um, which means that sometimes you don't as, as, you know, I feel like, again, I figured it out a bit, a bit later in life. Um, but I feel like in some ways I'm a better leader for it because, you know, I do, I do naturally, uh, really value the team. I, I put a lot of faith in, in them as, as, as people. Um, and I, I listen to them and I, and I oftentimes trust them more than I trust myself in terms of the things that, uh, that they feel are important or the things that we need to do. Ultimately, you still have to make decisions and you have to move the whole team forward. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like in, in many ways it was beneficial um, that I didn't just have this this image of myself um, as being some kind of super, super leader from early. Well, and it's interesting you bring up, uh, you know, servant leadership and, and, you know, really working with a team. I mean, a lot of leaders, I think have a different perspective. I talk to leaders all the time. I've, I've talked to some that just get frustrated because they feel like they early on don't really get it and have a lot of success. So they feel like they're not destined for it, which I think is is without a doubt a mistake. Um, and then a lot of leaders that kind of just put it all on themselves. They don't necessarily tap in to the team the way that uh, you're talking about. Um, do you see that as a big mistake? And and how does, how does a leader get to that point where they if they're not doing that really well, how do they how do they do that? How do they get to the point they've got a team that they can really, you know, tap into? Yeah, I, I do think a lot of leaders uh, put it on themselves, and 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 I know earlier, you know, I, I was I was the first in the office and the last to go home, you know, and that I think for whatever reason during the era that that at least I was trying to ascend uh, my career, uh, you know, it. it that was what, what I knew. And when I finally figured out that, you know what, Hey, if we really function as a true team, if we operate as a team, if we trust each other and we let each other leverage our strengths, then we're going to be a whole lot better in the collective um, than we are working as individuals. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, and I do think it's something that, that has to be learned over time. Um, I'm a bigger and bigger believer in it. You know, when I look at leaders and I work with a lot of leaders as well. um, And when I see the most successful leaders, 
they definitely have a direction. They definitely have places that they want to take the team, but they definitely are listening to the team along the way. And they're willing to change the course uh, if it becomes apparent or if the team really demonstrates that, hey, we need to think differently about this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're not afraid to uh, go off the track that they they are on, you know, to take take some risk or whatnot. Okay, that's right. And and, you know, they don't you know, they don't beat people up for failures. You know, that that's the other challenge is, is that you really have to make sure that you set the expectation that if we're really going to grow and learn that we're going to make mistakes, mm-hmm. we're going to fail at things. And that, you know, the key is, is, is not making the same mistakes again and again and again, you know, to fail, fail quickly and, and move on. Yeah. There's a lot of great leaders that, uh, that not only embrace that, they almost recognize and reward mistakes because it's taking risk and stepping outside of the comfort zone. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about the current environment. I mean, a lot going on now. This is a time where, um, and and for those listening at a different time, we're at the end of the, uh, hopefully end of pandemic and in the midst of quarantine and soon to come out of it in phases. But uh, leaders are really tested right now. This is a time where you need really great leadership uh, what do leaders need to be thinking about right now? What are the things that they need to be conscious of? You, you know, it's interesting, uh, and it's a great question. I, I really believe that what's happened in large measure is that most leaders have been used to operating in two modes, either the tactical mode or strategic mode or both simultaneously. And what's happened as a result of all that's gone on is we've added a third mode to the equation, and that's just the basic survival mode. And so, you know, you haven't, many leaders haven't had to think about the basic survival of their business um, ever in many, in many respects, um, or at least since, you know, early in, in, in their business's trajectory. And now we really have to think about each of those three modes simultaneously. And what's interesting is, is that, that I think, you know, some businesses have now, you know, put the survival question to bed. They really are in a place where they know they're going to survive. But maybe they're they're more tactical than they need to be, and and maybe they're not quite as as strategic um, today as as they could be. So I think being very intentional about thinking about where you are or where your business is, and in many large businesses, it can be where are the various divisions within our business, and really identifying which of the three modes that they're in or which of the three modes they need to be in. Um, and so that's something that I think that leaders need to be thinking about today. That's different. Um, is that it really is. I mean, we know academically it's a different environment. We know intuitively, you know, the, all the evidence is there. But I, I think that thinking about those three kind of modes of operation, and in some cases, you need to have members of your team assigned to each of those, you know, different types of, of mm-hmm. modes of operation. You work with, I know, a lot of leaders. What kind of leaders or businesses do you think come out of this stronger than they were before? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I don't think that it cuts across industries. In other words, you know, certainly technology, uh, you know, has been stronger uh, in terms of, of, you know, how quickly it seems to have rebounded, um, generally speaking. But across the board, I've seen businesses um, that have really been able, some making some very tough decisions early on, you know, are now really looking at not only how they're going to you know, survive in the new environment, but really thrive in the new environment. Um, it, it really does today. It is all about leadership. It's really, you know, who's willing to make the tough decisions, you know, who's willing to be very open and honest and candid with everybody about what's going on. You know, those are the folks generally, I mean, that's what I've seen is that it's, it's those who are more transparent, who are more honest, who are more open. Um, that seems to be a greater indicator of how quickly they can get to a place where they can stabilize at least. And then, you know, and in some cases really, really start to grow, um, versus those who want to, you know, who want to, um, just pretend like everything's okay and it's all going to be fine. And, and I think we all know that, that nobody has clear answers today. Well, and it's interesting because a lot of leaders, I think, are they, they are they're very guarded about the information and they don't share it with their team or their employees or associates with regard to how the business is actually doing. There's a lot of le- and, you you know, you brought up earlier with your restaurant, you didn't realize how how bad of, of, of a position that the restaurant was in. That would have been helpful for you to know that from yeah. day one. You didn't know you were doing a turnaround until you got yeah. you know well into it. Right. 
which, right. which is, is strange because that's something when you share that and you have that transparency, there's a lot of people on that team that really want to fight and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to react differently. They're going to put in more work. They're going to think differently, right? If they, if they know what's really going on. That's right. Well, and I'm a big believer then the absence of good, good, honest information, you know, the voids get filled with a lot of bad information and misinformation and things that are more corrosive than they are productive. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. People make up their own their own uh, you know narrative that uh, exactly. tends, tends to be worse than the reality sometimes. <laughs> and, and a lot of times, I think we forget. You know, team members they don't understand the complexities of the business or the complexities of the balance sheet or the complexities of the financial statements every month. You know that that you know it, it seems like oh, if our top line revenue is so high, of course we've got to be making money. But they don't think about literally all of the. <laughs> all of the line items that, that, that flow through in the P&L before you can push anything out the bottom. And, and it's not that they're, you know, ignorant or, well, you know, they just don't know. I mean, they really, they haven't, if you don't expose them to that information and make them aware of it, um, it just seems like, you know, surely to goodness, there's, there's, you know, just money being made hand over fist. Yeah. just based on what we see at the top line. Yeah, it's interesting. And you and I were talking the other day and you brought up some questions that are really good. And I think that was one of them, like asking leaders, do you want to talk about that? The, the two questions or tough questions I think you mentioned that you t- you like to ask? Oh, you talking about as it relates to the action learning that? that yeah, uh, yeah, and I, we might be jumping ahead. So if you want to start yeah. at a different place, we can do yeah, that. Yeah, no, that's fine. No, it's... it's uh, it, so, so essentially, action learning, and I can bring up. Uh, yeah. Let me here. Let me pull up um, for those who can see this. So, yeah, action learning is is uh, is a process that I think all leaders need to become aware of, um, especially in an environment where things are changing very rapidly. Um, and the nice thing is, is that this this has actually been around since the twenties. So the the father of action learning is a guy named Reg Revens. So Reg was a was an Olympic athlete for the UK, did the long jump, triple jump, uh, high jump. But he actually worked on a team at Cambridge uh, at a time which was interesting, obviously, around, you know, the development of, of or understanding uh, uh, the atomic structure and, and obviously ultimately dealing with nuclear warfare and, uh, you know, not, not too far behind it. Uh, but he actually worked in the lab with Cam- at Cambridge with Ernest Rutherford. And so the questions that he would ask that, that I think are important that Rutherford would ask that I think are important for leaders to ask today, which really helped lead to action learning is first of all, what does your ignorance look like? So you can imagine that in Cambridge, you've got the most brilliant minds of the time talking about some of the most complex problems. And he wasn't really interested. You know, the leader of this team was not interested in what they knew. He was interested in what they didn't know. And he constantly challenged them, to think about that. And then the second question was, was what are you really afraid of that you don't want to talk about? And let's discuss that as well. Let's put those kinds of topics on the table. And I think today, you know, it's really critical that we do ask ourselves, what does our ignorance look like? Because the things are changing at such a rapid pace. You know, we've always said, you know, the rate of change is accelerating and we know that intuitively, but today it's, it's really just a completely different level of, of change. And so thinking about these things and really understanding um, action learning itself, I think is really, really helpful. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you think about those questions, you know, what does our ignorance look like and, and what is it that we're really scared of? The thing that, that was sort of born of that was this formula that Revens developed, which is learning is the sum of a small P, the program knowledge. That means all of the things that we learn in school, the, th- the institutional knowledge that we have as organizations, but having a much larger Q, a large questioning insight. And that really, it's, it's more important that we surround problems with questions today than to immediately come up with answers. And I think leaders often, um, and I've seen them in the war room or seen them in, you know, different situations where, you know, it's like, you know, we want to get to answers. We want to get to answers. We want to get to answers. And sometimes it's really a better first step to actually get to taking a step back and asking better questions. And that's really what, what Revens uh, would espouse as well. Because we don't know, you know, we can't assume uh, that we know everything and we really need to be in a position where, you know, we have uh, team members that 
understand that there, yes, there are times when we have to make decisions that we have to move, but there are also times when we need to take a step back and make sure we're surrounding the problems with the right questions. And frankly, that we're considering that maybe things have changed. Maybe things are different, Mm -hmm. you know, and that we can't apply the same linear logic. We tend to want to take the easier route out to say, what's the problem? Who do we know that's dealt with it? Let's talk to them and figure out how they dealt with it. Mm -hmm. You know, that we're looking for, for prescriptive kinds of answers. Um, and realistically, we want to make sure that we're asking the right questions first. That's such a good point. And I think that's, that's, it's, it's almost a skill set you need to develop. I mean, there's a lot of leaders that don't know what the questions to ask. And you gave two great ones there. Um, when you do that, when you ask the right questions, I mean, I, I think, is do you feel like it's sometimes leaders feeling like, okay, if I ask questions, it's, it's almost, uh, it's, it's an ego thing. It's like, Hey, I wouldn't be asking the question if I knew the answer. Is that the obstacle or are they just, you know, don't know what to it, ask. It, it, it can be. And I, and I do think again, the, the best leaders that I see are, are truly humble leaders. You know, they just, and they really, the other thing is, is that I think some leaders too have used questions as a way to corner people. You know, it's like cross-examining someone in the witness box. And so if that environment exists on the team, then asking questions has a whole different meaning potentially or a whole different perception than what they're intended to have. So mm. it's it's truly a situation where you can truly ask questions in earnest. Um, and I say all the time when people ask me, how do you do all the things that you do? You know, you know, all of the things that I, you know, I have on my plate at any given time. And I quite simply say, I have great teams. It's all about the teams and it's all about the leaders on the team. Mm-hmm. It can't be. It's not about me. And the other thing that I will say is, is that I worked very hard and it's not that hard, thankfully, to make myself the dumbest person in the room. So so I want people who are far smarter than I am to really be there to help make good decisions and to take great care of, of the people that, that we take care of. And that helps you trust the fact that you've got a great team around you. When you have that mentality and you're really trying to find people that are better or smarter than you or build them up to be better or smarter than you, right. then you really do have a team that's going to be a team that operates at high effectiveness and one that you can rely on. The other thing that I really do very deliberately, and I do believe this helps leaders because especially leaders who've led smaller teams and the team has grown, you know, or where leaders have really kind of been the fountain of wisdom, you know, for a long period of time, um, which can work or has been able to work. I think it's much more challenging uh, today to, to be able to perpetuate that in any way um, is, is that they really have to, they really have to make a sincere effort to point out when other people have greater expertise than they do and literally point other people to talk to them about questions or solutions. So I have members of different teams that, that, that in the businesses that I have where, you know, I will say very quickly, you know, Michelle knows far more about that than I will ever know. You know, we really need to talk to her about this or I'll say, you know, Lynn's got 10 times the experience that I do in this area let's talk to him about it. It's really something that we need to, you know, we need to think about. Mm. Um, but, but I would feel much better getting his counsel than, yeah. than giving you an answer. That's almost like a great, you know, acid test for a leader. If they're, they're listening right now, you know, how many times do they say that, you know, how many times are they directing people to others or are they the type that's trying to absorb everything and they're the go-to person for everything? I, I've seen leaders like that, that they just, they get stuck in this, you know, can't break through the ceiling of complexity because they just, everything rolls to them and yep. you only have so much capacity and then your, your organization is only as good as you are. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, so, oh, go on. Well, I was going to say, and I've seen, it's amazing how large organizations can become, you know, using that model, but the bigger the organizations become, the more challenging it is for them to, transition to become more adaptive and resilient to change to do the things that they need to do to be successful into the future Mm -hmm. uh, it it really creates enormous challenges but the good news is is, i mean you can these are things that uh, some of the some of the greatest transitions that i've witnessed are leaders that were and really prided themselves on being these fountains of all knowledge or fountains of wisdom um and and that they really just basically admitted this flaw told the team they were going to work on it and then lived up to their word, you know, showed and demonstrated in every way 
that they were going to make the transition. And it's, it's, it's pretty amazing when, when leaders can do that Um, because ultimately there are obviously leaders or they wouldn't have the teams that they have. Uh, They, they, they wouldn't have developed them. Um, But it's very, very powerful when, when, when they really own that transition and take personal responsibility. Oh yeah. And stick with it too, because a lot of leaders, you know, they'll, they'll get feedback or they'll become aware of some kind of gap or opportunity. They'll make a change, but that then two weeks later, they're back to their old self. And, and, and the real acid test, even when it looks like they've made, you know, this major transition and transformation um, is, is when there's real distress or duress. That's when you really can, that's when the team knows whether this is, you know, temporary or permanent, you know, and if they can see in some of the most challenging situations, the most difficult decisions, that there's really been a transformation or a transition um, in the way the leader thinks and operates. Uh, it's it's very powerful stuff. Yeah. So I, I want to get into a little more about what you are teaching and when and through the uh, Consult MBA program, you and I were talking about some great stuff. Um, so I'd love to dive back into that if we can. I know you were sharing about the, sure. you know, the uh, well, we can jump to whatever, wherever you want to. No, that's fine. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, uh, what you're referring to, and I'll just, I'll, I'll page back a couple slides. Um, is that, that, um, one of the things that I believe today that's just critical is that we really think about leadership, uh, very, in a very similar way to driving a car. And there's a reason that the windshield is bigger than the rear view mirror. And I think, in a lot of decisions that have gotten made in companies uh, up until now, we've really been able to rely on historical information, historical data, historical numbers, historical trends um, to really inform what we need to do, you know, for the next three to five years or next year, or whatever the case may be. And I really do believe now more than ever, you know, this image of, of the windshield is really analogous to how we need to think about how we want to lead and how we want to move our, our teams and organizations forward. You know, we really need to see the road in front of us as well as we possibly can. The challenge is, is that we don't always know what's coming down the road, you know, and, and really if we're using the rear view mirror, it's a bit like trying to drive a car. You know, if you can imagine, we're just going to use a rear view mirror um, and we want to get home from wherever it is. If it's more than, you know, more than half a block from our home, trying to get anywhere using the rear view mirror is incredibly challenging. But if we can use the windshield, you know, we at least have a lot better chance um, at seeing where we can go. And, and I think this is, this is analogous also to situations where, you know, we all want evidence. We all want conclusive evidence that this is going to work or, or many of us do. Um, again, as you were talking about it earlier, you know, many of the best leaders are, are really intentional about saying, hey, we're going to try, we're going to break some eggs, How, you know, whatever analogy they want to use, you know, we're, you know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, make some mistakes, but it's really this idea that we're, we're driving and we're looking out the windshield that's going to make us more informed. It's not to say we don't want to think about the rear view mirror at all. Most importantly, let's think about the mistakes that we made. You know, if, if, if we don't, if we don't think about the mistakes and, and, and learn from the historical context of things that have occurred, then we're, we're likely to, re- to repeat them. Yeah. But it sounds like it, you know, what you're saying is a lot of, a lot of organizations just get fixated on what's happened and, and uh, even where they are versus where they're trying to get to and go. That's exactly right. And, and when the road's coming at you faster and faster, you know, it's, it's, it's an incredible challenge, but again, all the more reason that we have to trust the team, we have to listen to the team, we have to be asking better questions. Yeah, exactly. Great. I love it. I love it. So, so talk to, let's talk a little bit about. I know you have a um, a philosophy. I think around the core four. That's uh, yeah. that you were sharing that I really found interesting. Yeah, let me that. let me just do one other thing before yeah. we dig into that that sure. I think will be will be helpful. Um, is that that I do think one of the things as we we're thinking about what we want to do into the future and how we want to function as a team and how do we really get the team to start to think about things differently and really appreciating each other's uh, opinions. You know, one of the challenges in the boardroom or in the, in, you know, in the, in the team meeting room is that we tend to want to hurry to a consensus, right? And we, but we often pick one idea over another. Um, We seldom have the opportunity to allow competing ideas to coexist, right? 
And so one of the exercises that I think is really valuable is to think about things in terms of using tools. Now, this is this was originally developed uh, by an organization called Hofstede Insights. And basically, uh, these are, are dimensions that are used by businesses who are doing business internationally, um, who are thinking about what are the differences about the countries that we want to enter versus the country that we are from originally. And so there are things like an individualism versus collectivism, masculinity versus femininity, uncertainty avoidance, long-term versus short-term. You know, an example of long-term versus short-term would be um, you know, we tend to think in terms of long-term planning as three to five years, but in Asia, they're thinking of 50, 100-year kinds of plans. Um, things like power distance, you know, how, how far down the organizational structure are we willing to allow people to make decisions? These kinds of conversations and just talking about what each of these mean um, as a team can be very empowering to the team. Because really, as, as, as we want to work together and as we want to work you know, in, as, as teams uh, more effectively, having conversations where nothing is at stake. It's really just a conversation. And it's really just an idea of, of letting people express, you know, their thoughts about these things. What's fascinating about this is, is there are perceptions about how different generations may feel about this. You know, we always talk about, you know, the, the, the millennials and Gen Zs versus the Xers and the boomers. And we talk about, you know, how there are so many differences generationally. And oftentimes we find that that just isn't really true. Uh, there are just different philosophies. People just, people are people and they have different thoughts about things. And so having value added conversations around themes like this, where it's not, we're not trying to solve a problem. We're not trying to, it's truly just let's understand each other a little better. You know, these kinds of conversations, I think, are really, really helpful. That's interesting. So you coach leaders to actually have conversations around each of these areas with their whole team. So they really. That's right. Yeah. And I, and I have a simple set of questions that I give them um, to really. And, and I always say with anything that I give any leaders or any teams, I say these are starter questions or these are starter discussion points. Change them, adapt them, make them your own. But the important thing is, is that we're having conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that really do allow us to understand one another better mm-hmm. and understand how we approach problem solving differently. You know, and a lot of, a lot of teams will use things like DISC, the predictive index. Um, you know, there are all these different um, personality profiles that are based in, in, it's all based in Jung essentially, you know, in, in, in his teachings. But at the same time, um, we don't really just have conversations anymore, you know, about things to get, to get to know each other better other than the, kind of the, the artificial feeling, you know, tell me about yourself. And, you know, I mean, it just, these are ways that we can have conversations that are really more meaningful conversations, but at the same time, there's nothing really at stake. And we, 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 we only are going to benefit, you know, from, from learning about one another and how we feel about, about these, these, these issues. Yeah, I would imagine there's some amazing things that come out of this. I think about organizations that I've been part of, and there's there's a lot of these components here that there was a real difference in opinion, I think, in terms of <clears throat> people on the team. There was lack of consistency around thought on this, and that's I don't think that's the aim is that we're, everybody's consistent, uh, but to understand everybody's perspective. That's exactly right. And, yeah. and also to, you know, I, I really am a big proponent of this idea of coexistence. You know, even if we make a decision to go in a different direction, can we at least acknowledge that there's or are there some elements of another competing idea that can actually make what we were planning to do better? Mm. You know, and the more that we can really be intentional about having those conversations and really including other people's thoughts and ideas, the, the better serve the, the entire team's going to be. Yeah, exactly. I like it. That's that's terrific stuff. Great. The other thing that's interesting is when we think about, I mean, there's this major shift that's going on that people don't often think about or talk about, um, in part because this these next couple slides I'm going to share with you um, really show that um, we've had this massive explosion in the global middle class. Um, And the interesting thing about that is, is that that most people don't even know that 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 there is a transition going on at all. Um, we tend to, 
we know that there's growth or we know that there's tension. We don't really know what the numbers are. Um, and th these next couple slides actually come out of 60 pages of reports uh, by a gentleman named Homi Karras at the Brookings Institute um, on the middle class. But basically, you know, we tend to think that the U.S. and, and, and developed West is, you know, just, you know, omnipotent in terms of the world and, and, and that our culture, you know, is, is you know, preferred um, when, in fact, you know, there's a whole different um, group of people um, who have a lot of the same philosophies, but, but have different ways that they've approached things just because of the way their country or, or their families even have developed. And the realities are that, that in 2009, we had a billion members of the middle class in all of the West. That's all of Europe and all of North America. And in the rest of the world, Latin America and uh, Asia, Africa, the Middle East, there were only 847 million members of the middle class. Fast forward to 2015, the, the West grew by 57 million. Meanwhile, the East grew by over a billion members of the middle class. And by 2030, we're going to grow another 28 million in the West. The rest of the world is going to more than double again at 4.3 billion members of the middle class. Now, these numbers may be, you know, the, the, the time period that it takes to get there may be a little bit longer um, just as a result of, of uh, you know, what's happened presently. But at the same time, this trend is continuing um, and it's, it's a massive shift. And so as challenged as we feel things are now, what we have to realize is that there really is going to be a massive uh, uh, sea change in terms of the East now influencing the West as opposed to the West just influencing the East. Mm. Interesting. So what does a leader need to do with that right now? What What's their, what's kind of the takeaway for them? You know, I, th I think that the real takeaway there is just, is that, that it really is a situation that, we need, just need to be aware. You know, we, it's, it's more of an awareness than anything. Yeah. The great thing is, is that the same conversations that we were having with the team and trying to understand the team better are going to serve us well. I mean, this is what this stuff was designed for originally mm -hmm. from Hosteed yeah. is to really think about how are we going to better understand. Because at the end of the day, John, we need to either we need to think about how we're going to be impacting the world as a team. But maybe if we're not in a place to do that, we at least need to be thinking about how the world's going to impact us mm -hmm. and how our industry is going to change, how the supply chain might change, how, you know, there are a lot of things that that uh, mm -hmm. that can come into play um, that we just need to be thinking of. And, and fortunately, this, you know, what seemed like a silly kind of a of an exercise, maybe for within the team suddenly has a different meaning when it's really practice also for for the bigger game. Um mm -hmm. That, that, that we're ultimately all going to have to play. Exactly. Yeah. That's, uh, that's interesting. I, I did not realize that what, that was that much of a shift going on. Um, and I, my guess is most people are totally unaware of that. That that's, and, and, and I will tell you, it is people, people really have no idea. When you look at the numbers from a, you know, just strictly from a, a, uh, a regional on a regional basis, I mean, look at what's happened. You know, Asia goes from being 28% of the world's middle class to 65. Wow. North America goes from 18 to 7. The Middle East and Africa are going to be 9%. Latin America is going to be 6%. Latin America is going to be almost, in, in terms of members of the middle class by 2030, mm -hmm. they're going to have almost as many members of the middle class as we do in North America. Mm -hmm. And Africa and the Middle East are going to actually start to dwarf um, and when you consider people say, well, how is this possible? And the reality is, is it's just, it's really fairly simple in that, in that it's really all around demographics, you know, back in the, back in the seventies and, and, and eighties, um, since I know we're about the same age, you know, as you recall, I'm sure you couldn't turn on the television without seeing, you know, send, you know, let's feed the hungry in Asia. Let's feed the hungry in Africa. Let's feed the hungry in Latin America. And, and fortunately, you know, in spite of the many challenges that we've created for ourselves as a nation, unfortunately, we have been the most generous nation in the world in terms of giving, you know, giving tools, technology, you know, know-how. And that's really what's driven this is ultimately when infant mortality rates finally went down in these developing areas, people are resilient. And once people are resilient, well, then we also had this need 
for lower cost labor that, you know, that we call globalization, you know, that really swept across. So it was a, it was a perfect storm. And so that's what we're seeing now is that the boomers that we know in the West were born when people came back and decided to make love, not war. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's how the boomers boomed in, in, in our area or in, in the West, in the rest of the world, the boomers are actually in their twenties and thirties and early forties. Wow. So it's a much younger population as well. So it's, it's really going to be fascinating to see, see what unfolds yeah. and enormous opportunities for the people who do recognize it and really who, who embrace diversity. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I know we're obviously, you know, that's a huge issue that we're, we're wrestling with now. Um, but I hate to say it, it seems to me that we, we as Americans just, we need to grow up. I mean, we look at other nations and we as a nation just, we struggle where other nations have really put this issue to bed long ago. Mm. Well, it's interesting. I think as a leader, one of the most important things that, that you need to be able to do is understand you know, what, where things are going and the trends and what that means and connect the dots. And so many leaders live in uh, you know, their, their, uh, their Petri dish of what their current existence is. And that's it. You know, they don't, they don't understand where things are going. So yeah. very helpful. So, so really important for all of us to understand, because if, if we think, if we think these numbers aren't going to impact us in the very near future, mm-hmm. we're kidding ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Our world is changing. Yeah. No Good. question. Good. So, so uh, I, I know we're running a little bit short on time, but that's exactly, I, I think we're headed right to the right place. I'd love to have you share a little bit about the, uh, yeah. the core four. Yeah, so, so this is a process that I've developed that I call next chapter planning. And so it came out of a, really the amalgamation of all my experiences and, and dealing with major transitions of leadership, ownership, or both um, with entrepreneurs and family enterprises. And so essentially, um, you know, what, what, uh, what I often say, you know, as, a, as an acronym to remember the, the core four is you want to teeter before you run. And if you think about it, you know, we all really kind of struggle even when we're first starting to walk, you know, it, eventually we can, we can, and even today, you know, and I'm a few, not as young as I used to be, you know, I feel like I've, it takes me a little while longer to, to get, to get started. And so um, essentially the core four are four themes that I believe teams really need to think about. And again, this is great fodder for conversations, of, if nothing else. So the core four are trust, which just means, you know, we want to talk about as a team, how much trust do we have within the team? How strongly do we trust one another? How strongly do we trust our suppliers? Do any of us have concerns, especially in times like these, do any of us have concerns about our suppliers being able to supply, you know, to fulfill uh, their promises to us? Um and then how much do our team members trust us and how much do our uh, customers and clients trust us? These are all critical questions that we need to get honest answers for. But it also provides a place that, that we can really then focus on and focus on reinforcing and, and, and developing uh, if we identify that there are some gaps. No surprise, the second theme is uh, relationships, you know, very closely tied to trust. Again, I think one of the things that we tend to think about as it relates to relationships as leaders is we're constantly looking externally. Let's have better relationships with our customers. Let's have better relationships, you know, with, with um, our suppliers. Let's have better relationships with our clients, whoever we're serving. And we often miss what's probably the most important thing to think about. And that is how do we ensure that we have good relationships with our team members and that our team members have good relationships among one another. Those are really critical issues. Um, that people don't, we don't often think about. We tend to think more externally about it. We don't tend to think internally. And it can be just as simple as just taking a few minutes or a few extra, uh, you know, a few extra minutes in a meeting to have a conversation, you know, about what's going on with someone individually, just to show that we really care about them and what's happening to them. Mm-hmm. The third uh, core element is time. And again, how do we spend our time? How do we make, are we making good use of our time? Um, you and I were talking uh, a week or so ago about this, this issue. And, you know, you know, the average meeting as you and I agreed was one hour and it's like, do we really need to take an hour as a team or do we really need to have standard meetings be 30 minutes and just compress? Because most of the time, you know, I find that that really 20 or 30 minutes of a, of an hour long meeting is substantive. The rest, you know, not so much. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth element is responsibility. And that's really, binary in nature. It's both being financially responsible and socially responsible. 
And, and those two things really are inseparable, uh, in, in my opinion, especially as leaders today, uh, especially as we look for younger talent, because if we're not demonstrating, you know, how we're socially responsible, not just financially responsible, um, and how much money people are going to make, you know, while, you know, while working with us or, or, you know, how much of the bottom line we need to grow and also not thinking about how we're going to make a positive impact on our region, you know, our world, wherever we may operate, we're going to, we're going to be challenged. Yeah. I love this because it's simple and it's a, it's a great, extremely important concept that's broken down because I think a lot of teams and organizations just get overwhelmed. It's like, okay, well, there's, you know, we got to focus on 50 or a hundred different things, but you know, your point here is a really good one that these are the four that are really the core before you do anything else, you have to have these and you've got to have, these have got to be rock solid. You know, you look at trust and I talk a lot about that. There are things that leaders do or teams do that unknowingly erode trust. And when that happens and you don't have an organization that really has a high level of trust, you can't go to a great big high place. Um, it just will not, you, you just can't, can't actually get the team there. So I really uh, like this. And my guess is in working with organizations, you've seen, they've seen pretty dramatic results when they've really focused on this first and gotten this down. That's the foundation for everything. That's right. And, and we do, we've got a simple assessment process that we take teams through. And one, one example of just how quickly we can move the needle is we had a, I had a, a, a whole C-level leadership team for, an, for, for a company uh, that I was working with. And, and literally, you know, vice president of sales, marketing, you know, had, had, um, had uh, uh, the CEO, COO, CFO, and then, you know, the second layer of, of, of leadership team. Uh, interesting thing that happened was, you know, the whole team assesses themselves around financial responsibility. The rest of the team, leadership team, scores the company at an eight or a nine, and the CFO ranked them at a four. And so, you know, it was a great, you know, opportunity to say, okay, you know, wow, this is, this is, there's, a, you know, we're way off here. So, so essentially, you know, it was just, they needed some better controls around financial, uh, financial control software. So in other words, wanted to be, keep better track of receivables and payables. And then they were a little bit concerned about some of the policies around signing checks and, and literally looked at the rest of the team, said all those in favor of, you know, getting Gail the, the, uh, the, uh, um, software that she needs, you know, it was, it was literally a few thousand dollars, um, which to this organization, you know, they had fairly significant budget. It was not a big deal, but it just shows you how having conversations in different ways can really lead to, to really having meaningful, uh, making meaningful progress. Yeah. Um, and to your point, we, we do, especially today as things get complicated and convoluted and we're dealing with all the strategies and the tactics we really need to just take a step back and focus on what's really important. And this really in the simplest of terms is a, is a way to help solve problems, you know, thematically, you know, it's really just a tool to help, help us do that. Right. And well, it's amazing what those conversations open up and there you go. You solve a problem with just asking the right questions. And this is a really good framework to, to do it. So great stuff. Exactly. I know we're running uh, out of time here, and this has been fantastic. I got a zillion more questions to ask you, but um, for the audience, uh, what what uh, what would you like to leave them with as uh, maybe another thought or concept before we do wrap? Yeah, the the only thing that I would say is is that that I do think that that you know as we as we get really good at at focusing on these core four elements, you know, there really is a whole new world that that we can open up, um, and you see here, that, you know the reference in the, in the slide to the semis. Again, it's another, it's another acronym. And so when we think about what does it mean when we get to the semis as an organization, it means, you know, maybe we don't win the big game, but we're in the big game. You know, we're really, we're really right there with the best of them. Um, and, and what's nice is, is that we can actually, you know, through really developing trust relationships, responsibility and time, we can start to then think about higher functioning things. Again, to your point, we need to have those really foundationally solid, but then we can start to think about how do we create better experiences again, not just for our customers and our clients, but also for our team. 
How can we become more ingenious? How can we have more ingenuity as an organization? You know, a lot of organizations want to talk about innovation. Well, innovation oftentimes uh, can really result in just a lot of running in place. We can be very innovative, but we can, we're not actually going somewhere. So mm -hmm. I'm a much, big much bigger believer in ingenuity than just in innovation itself. Mm -hmm. um, and then mindfulness, as you can see, it's really... Uh, in the illustration, you know, you got a got someone that's that looks like they're doing yoga with with the globe, you know, hanging over their head, and and it really is because it is two things. Again, it's binary. It's about being in the present. So when we're meeting, are we are we really focused on the things that we need to be focused on? And then again, do we have this global mindset? Are we thinking about how we're going to impact the world, or at a minimum, how how's the world going to impact us? And then spirit and or spirituality. You know, sometimes that can have you know, religious connotations, sometimes it does not, you know, obviously people think about, you know, businesses that have been very successful, you know, that are overtly religious, people think about organizations like Chick-fil-A. Um, but at the same time, spirituality, in my opinion, as it relates to teams, is really just about, you know, what is it that is the special glue that keeps us together? What is it that really makes us a truly cohesive team? And there usually is, again, this is what's interesting when you talk to teams about this, different people have different ideas about what the special glue really is at the end of the day why can't we allow that to coexist and it's it's really something that that can allow our businesses our organizations to be special to a lot of people in a lot of different ways that maybe we didn't even realize yeah exactly well i uh this has been uh, fantastic vaughn you've given uh, i know everybody a lot to think about and uh, some great perspective if people want to follow up with you and get a hold of you um how do they do that yeah the easiest way is uh is can just reach me uh through my through the college of business at the university of louisville uh my email address is vaughn that's v-a-u-g-h-a-n uh two a's in vaughn like stevie ray uh dot scott at louisville.edu. And then uh, easiest way to also reach me, uh, especially today is via mobile, 502-500-2242. Excellent. All right, my friend. Well, this has been terrific. And uh, I hope maybe at some point down the road, we'll get you back and we'll do part two of this. Love, love to do it. Thanks so much for having me, John. You got it, Vaughn. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. As always, appreciate all your likes, your comments. Appreciate you sharing this and also your ideas on uh, future guests, future topics. Uh, most importantly, take what you learned today. Do something with it. Further yourself, further other people, further your organizations. Thanks, everybody. Have a good one. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader for suggestions or inquiries about having me at your next event or personal coaching. Reach me at john at loritogroup.com. Once again, that's J-O-H-N at L-A-U-R-I-T-O-G-R-O-U-P.com. Thanks. Lead on.